I knew that I would maybe that my that my father would never understand me. Um and um and also like he's kind of a terrifying person. So <laughs> so I just felt like there would be the wrath of this terrifying person and there'd be chaos if I articulated completely, you know, um my shape and form to myself and to them or to others. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about father figures, daddy issues, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We talk to fascinating people about how much they did or didn't know about the man who helped create them and make them the person they are today. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. Hi, this is Matthew. In late 2020, painter Salman Tour had his first solo museum exhibition at the Whitney Museum in New York, a show he called How Will I Know, a reference to the 1985 Whitney Houston single. The New York Times declared the show a brilliant debut, stating Salman Tour's evocative, tenderly executed paintings begin to pluck at your heartstrings almost as soon as you see them. Included in the show were 15 works, all smaller-scale paintings depicting young queer people from South Asia communing in homes and public spaces, connecting and enjoying life, all the while navigating a world where their safety and validity is routinely made uncertain. Many of the works feature a lush green that washes over figures and objects that seem to blur subtly into sensuous, dreamlike scenes that bring a fresh, queer approach to examining one's identity even as they conjure European old masters like Vermeer. And in fact, late last year, Salman was one of four artists to be included in a show at the Frick Collection called Living Histories, Queer Views and Old Masters, where paintings by contemporary queer artists were hung alongside paintings by old masters. His piece, Museum Boys, was hung in a room next to Vermeer's painting, Officer and Laughing Girl, drawing an aesthetic line between the past and the present. All of this is to say that Salman and his work have achieved an international resonance that few artists get to experience while they're alive. He grew up in Lahore, Pakistan, before moving to Ohio to study painting at Wesleyan, then to New York City for postgrad at the Pratt Institute, settling in New York where he now lives. Salman and I became friends several years ago, and on this episode, we compare the experience of growing up gay in outposts of the British Empire while attending similar all-boys prep schools designed to churn out the elite alpha male politicians and engineers of tomorrow. He opens up about the defining memories of and changing, enduring connection he has with both his parents and Pakistan in general, now that he calls New York home, how he thinks his parents may feel about his international success as a painter, and what is behind some recent work that depicts what he calls the shadow father, that will debut in a solo exhibition at the Baltimore Museum of Art in Maryland in May. So here's my conversation with Salman. I hope you enjoy. I grew up in, in Lahore, in Pakistan, which is in Punjab province of Pakistan. It has a border with India, and it shares the province with India. In North India, it's also another Punjab, the Indian Punjab. I grew up in a very middle-class, typical middle-class conservative household. My parents were pretty gendered, so my mother was very, very girly. <laughs> my father was very kind of super macho, you know, he was also a good-looking man, 
you could compare it to like 50 Maribel, because my friends called my mother like Betty Broker in high school because she's just, she's baking and being a whole body and a housewife. And my, my father was out hunting. So he'd come back in his big Jeep with, you know, piles of geese. And sometimes they would go also go wild boar hunting, but obviously like that boar, like sow that was like killed was just like left. No one wanted to eat it. And so, but, you know, he would come back with these kind of piles and of, of these beautiful, like, dead birds and I would play with the dead birds. It's just kind of creepy and gross <laughs> now that I think about it. But I used to love their feathers and just look at how, like, angelic, like, just figure out how they flew and, like, looking at them. But, you know, so I grew up in a gendered, conservative, kind of religious household in Lahore. When you say... Religious kind of religious, what do you mean? I mean, you know, like not like a household in which women are like veiled, but, but at the same time, not, I wouldn't say progressive. Okay. Yeah. I grew up with, on the periphery, whenever it came up, you know, there was like a kind of misogynistic and a homophobic streak in a subterranean way. When did you pick that up? How early were you? How old were you when you picked that up? Well, actually I was quite young. And I must have been like 13, well, 12, maybe. I mean, there were definitely instances before this, but this was the main one I felt like. Uh, there was a, you know, there was a femme designer on TV and he was on a dog show. And, you know, very talented, beautiful. My parents and I were watching it. And it was just a very revealing moment because I saw myself and that person like much later on in life. And not only was I unsettled, but I also like, I feel like my parents said some things that I was just like, oh, wow, this is, you know, it just gave me the impression that that was deeply undesirable. And that is definitely like an instance that I want to write about or paint about. And, and eventually I actually, I became friends with that designer. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but you know, like there was a lot of um, stuff that I grew up with in my family and also just in the extended social system, which was never on my side as a femme kind of queer boy growing up, uh, that I had to undo, that I didn't even know had to be undone very like consciously once I'd moved away from home. Do you think that undoing only began once you left? No. Because when I came to the States, you know, yes, there was freedom and you could be left alone for for being queer or femme. But it was also a very polarized kind of LGBTQ social system. Like there, there wasn't a space like there is now for a lot of experimentation and ambiguity and a kind of sexual and like self-expression. That didn't exist about five years ago, even. Uh, you know, it was very millennium, you know, very like Ricky Martin. Right. I remember once listening to a fantasy hotline and you would listen to all these people's, they'd leave messages explaining what their sexual fantasies were. And it was all men talking about Ricky Martin only. And I'm like, what, when did I miss the memo? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, also like, you know, Unlike before, like, I guess, Instagram and all these different apps that we have now, like, 
Steroids could be so much bigger. Like, there was so monolithic. It was just like, it's Ricky Martin or no one. Yeah, yeah. When you say that, you slip into an American accent. But there's some jokes that just don't work in my accent. So yeah. I just have to like, I think I automatically, without even thinking, I just go into like, my brother, you know, not such a great version of an American accent. I think I have the same character that I slip into as well. But so, I mean, when you're talking about the coded homophobia and misogyny, did it come in equal parts in the same way from both parents or did it come from one or the other? Like, how did that play out in each of your parents individually? Well, I think that my relationship with my mother was extremely like godly. Like I was given a lot of loans. So I wouldn't say that it was like, you know, comments or behavior that threatened me or made me feel outside from her side. But there was a lot of fear because I knew, you know, who I was to a certain extent, as much as you can at that age. And I knew that I would maybe that my, that my father would never understand me. He was kind of a terrifying person. So, <laughs> so I just felt like there would be the wrath of this terrifying buzz and there would be chaos if I articulated completely, you know, um, my shape and form to myself and to them or to others. Yeah. I mean, I think men of that generation, I mean, I had countless men of that generation and that character. And that same fear of their response. It's this ubiquitous fear of men of a certain age. Yeah. I mean, there was a kind of, I think, implicit, you know, in my school as well, it was an all boys prep school called Ageism, but just the idea that violence can solve things like, <laughs> I know. Uh, and that basically everyone sees the light. If you just need a little slap or like something like that, or, you know. Right. Uh, a bunch. But I think that one of the things that we have very much in common is that we both went to these sort of elite boys schools in outposts of the British empire, where you have this British culture that is forced upon a landscape that it really has no business being. I mean, there's no sense in drinking tea in a top hat in the middle of the desert. Like that's what Australia seemed like a lot to me as a child. Why are we what is this? Why are we having these like suet pudding in the middle of like deadly summer? Like this is nonsense. So there's already that kind of discord there. But then when you go to a school like yours and mine, I, I, my one, uh, Trinity Grammar School in Sydney, it was modeled after Eton. We wore the blazers and the boaters and there were prefects and it's this extravagant landscape in the middle of this inner west like just oozing opulence everywhere but it's such a weird environment to spend five to six years of your life when you're queer and you're taught that uh, we were taught that you know we're bred to rule in a way it was like this is where they lay all the groundwork for you to be the elite of tomorrow and inherent in that is a kind of violence. I remember my stepfather telling me before I went to Trinity that rugby was compulsory, which terrified me because I thought it was a violent and frankly boring sport. And he told me that Mr. West will sort you out 
Mr. West being our headmaster. I wondered what that experience was like for you, learning essentially how to be a man in this kind of imperialist way. Like, how did you respond to that? Well, I tried a bit, like there were some friends of mine, hetero friends, and they'd be like, no, let me, let, let me teach you like how to walk. <laughs> and you know, like it was just, it was really funny now that I think about yeah. it. I still couldn't learn, like I just would sashay down the hole. And for me, that meant a lot of like get calls and bullying and I was afraid, but then at some point I wanted to be a kind of like a rock star about it and be like, I'm going to sashay down this hole. Oh, uh, and uh, so. It became kind of like a combative, challenging thing after, I think, by like ninth or 10th grade. I was just like, no, I'm going to be this person. Uh, and, um, you know, you can say whatever you want. But like, the reason that I was able to keep it that way, I think, was that I did receive a lot of respect for my skill as a picture maker. Um, so, you know, that helped me. I think that was a way of being a part of that social system. I was going to say, there's a certain point where you own it and then they kind of turn around and go, oh, he's all right. Like in a way, right? Like quietly, like they can't explicitly condone you, but they kind of. Well, yeah. I mean, because I think that they were struck by two cliches at once and they didn't <laughs> right. even know which one to pick up. It's like, are you like the person in the beret with like the paintbrushes or are you like the sissy walking down the hall who's yeah. basically, yeah. you know, in popular imagination, terrible loser and will really not amount to much. So that really was something that I not only loved doing, but that also gave me a context which was confusing to other people in a um, sometimes funny way, um, that they could forget actually who, like they could forgive me for sashaying. Yeah. Because there was this other thing that they, that like kind of took a lot of, um, attention. One thing that always fascinated me about my schools was like why people sent their kids there. Like it, it was a thing they were really investing in providing them with contacts and status and the, the kind of association with some kind of elite organization that would then like propel them forward later on. Oh, for sure. I mean, HSN has a reputation for producing these starchy men yeah. who are good sportsmen. It's a horse riding kind of school. Yeah. Um, I, that was the only kind of sport that I could excel at a little bit. There was a sport called tent pegging that I didn't participate in, but I was a good rider. I absolutely hated cricket. And honky. It's a school for like engineers yeah. and future politicians. Yeah. I was lucky because I found the art room and that's where my life conducted itself at the school. Right. Because right. the art teacher was a grown up guy who was, I felt may have been a person like me and my friends when he was younger. The art room was like a large room, you know, where there were different classes going on, but he would just that allow me to sit and just do drawings and paintings. I wanted to do them all day long. And I met all of my friends there. Yeah. Um, so that became a haven for us where we would look at art books and do impressions of like Sally Spectra. <laughs> uh, and, you know, be ourselves totally without fear. 
Was there a religious basis to the school? Was it affiliated with a church or, or religious practice? It wasn't, and it wasn't private. It isn't a private school completely. It's I think it's half private and public. And so, okay. Um, and the only elite part about the school really what had, had was the grounds at this point by the time I went there. Um, the grounds were just stunning, yeah. beautiful. So, you know, I think for NST, it was a kind of a lovely place to be like sad in, you mm -hmm. know. That's exactly, yeah, that's how I felt, yeah. I mean, I guess the difference though, like for me, my school was a Church of England and I mean, that's like rivals the Catholic Church when it comes to camp. It's such theater and it's such nonsense. Yeah, it wasn't associated with a particular like brand of Islam, for instance. Everyone was Muslim. I don't think there were any people that I remember that there was any other sects of people within Punjab who went to Ajison. But I mean, you know, overall religion has and is always has been in this position where it can be used like as a tool at any given time so that it wasn't on any religious basis. I think that I was daunted or bullied because I think it was more a confusion as to why I would give up this elite, like male stages in a misogynistic social system. Like, why would I do that? And like, what an idiot, you know? Yeah. So, um, there was that. Um, I think the religious stuff came later when like, I guess we're talking about dating or like seeing boys. I mean, I didn't have a, a boyfriend or, you know, anything like that while I was at Ageson. So the religion didn't impinge in that way. I mean, there's a fundamental difference though, between being queer in Pakistan and being queer in America or Australia. What is that made up of? What does that look like? I can summarize that for you. Yeah, please do. It means like there is no articulation. Uh, you know, usually people are expected, whether whatever their sexual practice is, to get married and to have a marriage between a man and a woman, to have children, and to continue in the family way because that's the only way to be part of the social fabric. The state doesn't move in to protect single people who don't contribute uh, by creating families. In fact, the state is pretty absent. So a family is the system, networks of families are systems by which people show their power or exercise power or protect each other. Right. So to remain single for uh, a queer man or a woman is a kind of rebellion um, and is also seen as a threat to system in which people have been paired up. So it's an outsider status. Right. Um, and every now and then someone would like to use that against you. Um, they could, I mean, so it's like a, um, you know, your queerness, I mean, yeah. so that's, that can be used as a tool, which is incredibly frightening and unfair. So people don't, you know, that it's, it's wise for some, you know, people to not come out and totally understandable. But at the same time, with all the internet and the apps and everything, you know, people meet across the class system to date, to sleep with each other. But at the same time, um, I think that it's, you know, like within the confines of your private home, 
and among a small community of, you know, friends, people can be whoever they want to be. That sounds like a great reprieve, but actually after a while, maybe it's not because there is a cost to not presenting as you fully are in right. public. It's exhausting. It's, it's exhausting and it feels, um, feels like a compromise for a while. How did your parents react as you're negotiating yourself as a queer person in this quite establishment place? Well, I think they were happy that I had found friends because I, I, I think that they saw that I was happy for sure. Um, even though at that age, it's always debatable. It's like, were you happy? Mm. Not sure. sure. Yeah. I mean, no, I was incredibly lucky to find my friends. We were all very similar people, also all interested in reading and painting and being queer. So it was a very tight knit group of not only just boys, because we found girls from a bit of our grammar school who were part of our group and we were all just hang out and have fun. My parents became concerned that I was going to get an idea of going abroad because most of my friends were going to go abroad. I think that my parents didn't, I don't know what kind of future they imagined for me. And I had no idea what future I was marching towards, but I think that was something that they had to come to terms with that. I, meanwhile, I was making plans with my friends going through like these different prospectuses, like college magazines to like imagine a life, what life be like and right in these like Western capitals for some reason that only American colleges were encouraged, um, maybe because they gave financial aid right. and British colleges didn't do that. Um, and so I was looking at a bunch of them and uh, that was a very exciting time. I mean, I had a very skewed idea of what it would mean to, <laughs> to live in New York. Uh, it, it was completely ridiculously funny. Like, I think the movie with like 50, like Studio 54 would like share had just come out at the time. It's interesting that you thought your parents were concerned that you were thinking of leaving and... If they had no idea what I would, what they had. They had never gone abroad for college. How did they react to the fact that it seemed inevitable you were going to be some kind of an artist? And I mean, that's not exactly stable. And, and then reliable, you know, were they okay with that? You know, I am to this day just also surprised that they let that happen. <laughs> it's just like, I just like slipped through the ball. I don't know what happened. It was like, oh yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do architecture. Of course, like I'll major in something like that has more like of a system and a plan once you graduate. But you know, halfway through it was like, no, I think I'm just going to keep going to the studio classes. And like, I just can't get enough of the art history classes. I just, no, please, please, please. And, and before I knew it, uh, you know, I was graduating in art history and, and like studio painting. And, um, for me, that meant that I would go to New York and I would from Ohio where I was studying that I would move with my friends, all of us would move to New York and then I would like start writing or like doing stuff for magazines and like working in a gallery. It's the same thing that I guess most art graduates go through. And I realized very quickly that I did not belong in an office. Right. It was just not going to happen. Uh, I mean, I also did something that in retrospect, that sounds pretty challenging to me. I did marketing for a magazine, for an art magazine. Right. 
which was like, you know, it was kind of like a fake magazine. <laughs> it sold magazine space for money to yeah. people who wanted to appear in a magazine that was published in New York that would just publish their images and little blurb. It was awful because I had to go through hate mail in the morning from the artists that I reach out to, to like, um, you know, a lot of them would say things like, well, you know, it's because of people like you that this culture really sucks. And I mean, they were right. We were just like the magazine, like prey on whoever it thought yeah. was a vulnerable, desperate artist or not so desperate, but an artist who would have enough garish to pay for mm. a spread or an interview or like a little blow. Magazine has since dissolved, oh, obviously. Not a sustainable business model. So, you know, it was terrifying to think about the future. Um, and it wasn't until I graduated from Prague that I had some idea about how to live with just painting. Because um, in 2009, 2010, I was able to somehow have shows in Kerchi and in New York. Uh, in a gallery that specializes in Indian art in Soho. And I was able to pay rent for my apartment in East Village. Um, so that was really something. Uh, and I felt like it was enough for me. Like, because on the day I would do things in the studio that I loved and just meet my friends later and be free. It was a very happy time, actually. Every now and then, though, there would be like, dark clouds because like something maybe twice a year I would be like oh god I don't have money for rent like in right. the next two months oh shit what am I going to do um and uh, you know in those instances I would swallow my pride and I like, call my father and <laughs> be like daddy save me uh and he didn't make it easy but <laughs> how were those conversations with your father playing out because it's like you're calling, but it's like what you actually have achieved is fairly astonishing just in itself. And maybe you didn't make rent that month, but like the other 10 months you actually have. I think generally I grew up with my parents' idea of what artists are. And to my father has articulated this when I was growing up, like they're basically just degenerate drug addict people like to stay away. I don't think that they had like a yardstick to have a measure of what subsistence versus success versus anything else like meant. Like they didn't have like pantheon of other people's stories of success in this profession. And whenever I went home, they would be like, stop making these ugly paintings and like, why don't you make a nice landscape yeah, for the drawing room? Yeah. Or like, you know, make, uh, make us one of those, why don't you paint us one of those folk tales from Punjab and Sin? Those are like love stories in which people die in the end, you know, and I guess they're beautiful, but like serves them right because they weren't married. <laughs> <laughs> I love my parents enough to be actually like, you know, I, I did landscapes for them. I didn't go as far as folk tales because I was like, no, not these hetero stories. Thank you. But yeah, like, yeah. um, I did do a bunch of landscapes for them that are good. Yeah. So they yeah. put them up. So, but otherwise I was painting more oblique pictures at that time, um, around like t between 2010 and 15. I was looking at old masters and just trying to be very refined in that painting. I was okay with being an academic artist and 
I just wanted to make these subtle pictures that have just undercurrents of desire. They're very much about luxury, about texture, and about the things that, like most of 17th century European painting, had been about for hundreds of years. And I guess it was from there that I decided that I wanted to be out through painting, being out. That's what I wanted to, that's how I wanted to go public with it. That decision was pretty, that was scary for me, even though once I had crossed the bridge, I was just thought, how stupid I should have done this, like, much earlier. But I'm glad that I didn't, because there were definitely other things that I learned so much in that time. I went to the Frick yesterday and saw Museum Boys. Uh, it's one of my favorite of your paintings in the room with Vermeer. One of the things I like so much about your paintings is the way that so many of the subjects are your dear friends. And these are often paintings of aesthetes, intellectuals gathering in houses and, and bars to enjoy each other's company. And there's a queer community and joy in that. The, the, I mean, the, the paintings are also surreal, absurd in a way that I find really charming. But I think what comes across is your deep connection with these subjects. I know some of the people that are in your paintings too, so I know what your relationship is, is like with them. And I know that, that you love these people dearly. And it's, so there's a real intimacy about that. And one of the things I was interested to talk to you about was the emergence of this um, figure in some of your newer paintings that you described to me as the shadow father. Perhaps you could describe the presence of this shadow father, what it looks like, where it is coming from. Where did this come from? What is your connection to this shadow father? I mean, I was just thinking of my own father and also just like the idea of my father to me when I was younger. But I'm also thinking of it thematically. So like father as a kind of God that is, that is, can be very, very tender and also terrifying and, you know, a handsome disciplinarian, um, and there was something in that in a kind of movement between like tenderness and terror that really more, like I that excited me painting uh, like a father kind of holding a child and almost like a Madonna and this you know the idea of a man with a young baby it's just it's a very tender image yeah so I did about three paintings four paintings um of the shadowy father emerging to either as like a terror god or um as a comforter um but also i think that the father figure also bears as these i guess cliches of tradition that i do which ha are have to do with wearing traditional costume they're kind of stand-ins in my head for a conservative world that is beautiful really but not progressive and unwelcoming probably to me um and i feel like the shadowy father figure is the thing that helps me describe my relationship to that material constantly at every age it changes yeah. or it becomes more vivid and um so i think the shadowy father figure is not just like paintings of like daddy or whatever, but I think any 
kind of figure that is traditional. And to me, the way that I construct those figures is by making up costumes for them. Um, so that they're not, you know, donning these like turbans or like anything to do with like a Muslim, like an Islamic hat or something like that. Um, I like to make up the costume because it's really fun and, and I can create something new and beautiful. Looking at old master paintings is European old master paintings. That was one of the things that made me excited looking at them was the idea of costume and fashion right. and how they describe different kinds of people in Europe that, you know, it, it seems like it was pretty codified so that everything from like a dilt of a hat to like the uh, texture of a fabric describes an income group, urban versus provincial versus status. Yeah. It seems like a lot of the paintings of your friends and paintings of I mean, these are South Asian figure who, who are very much within a world in which their existence and their bodies certainly are policed by white patriarch. So it would seem to me that you're coming out as queer through painting. I could see that very clearly in a lot of the works, particularly the work that when you had your solar show at the Whitney, I mean, I could see that very clearly, but I, it's interesting to me that you started painting the shadow father more recently. Do you know why it came up now? It wasn't a matter of like specific timing or anything like that. I had done these father paintings off and on. They're just, uh, it turns out that they're all, they're going to be shown in, in one show in May. Oh, so that way they'll kind of come out into the world together. But I had been doing them for a while. Okay. What was your parents' reaction to some of, um, the more recent paintings that really have, that really have like, I mean, they're not just in museums. I mean, there, there was one on a bus, uh, stop outside my apartment. I would walk outside and was greeted by this beautiful painting of yours. I mean, that these are seen, people know your work. It is, it is recognized. What is your parents' reaction been to that given the queer subject matter? They supported enough not to stop me. Right. But I'm other, you know, they don't have, uh, they don't have encouraging bad on the shoulder kind of advice to give me, um, neither would I expect them to, because they've shielded themselves from the modern world completely. And they have a completely full context, all of their own. Um, but coming back to the patriarchy that you were talking about, white patriarchy and brown bodies in these paintings, and that is something that I. Um, deliberately like, did think about when I was painting these. Mm -hmm. The excitement in painting these kinds of paintings was specific body types and, and color and body hair and tingling like anxieties about, pre-assessed anxieties basically, about who belongs in a bourgeois culture, in an urban western center, in what kind of apartment, thinks about clean sheets or just a kind of a, the protagonist, uh, a brown protagonist of a modern life here, that excited me. And that was also mixed up with earlier images. You know, I did look at a lot of Orientalist painting, but I'm not a huge fan of Orientalist painting. It's not, I feel like it is very beautiful and imaginative because a lot of it is fiction. 
It's not really about the paint. It's about the excitement of these different kinds of facial features and bodies and imagined luxuries and far away. But I wanted to just make my work autobiographical mm-hmm. and um, make it also imaginary so that these paintings aren't based on models and there is no picture in front of me. I'm just making it up as I go along. I'm just following, thinking about something some memory from night street or in new york or me among my friends or memories of lovers and stuff like that but also i enjoy bearing that up with memories of growing up in in pakistan and lahore or the feeling of that excitement and fun in knowing both of these worlds both of us moved to the other side of the world for reasons that i guess one discovers over time more and more. What is that like for you to go back to Lahore now when you're, you've, you have your life and your home here and your family is there? And do you stay with your family? I do. And, um, I mean, it's a really, it's a relationship, I think, to the material that is my community of origin, which I'm always going to need because first of all, like I do have a studio there as well. I have lots of work there. I have lots of friends there. Um, so it's not like a defunct life. It's like changing gears mm-hmm. when I go from here to there. Um, I think it's good to escape the over-saturated freedom of New York City because there's just like too many choices and it can, get, it can get really tiresome after nine months. So going back to a place which is harsher, it's actually kind of nice. I think it's an incredible like, I'm so grateful, it's such a privilege to be able to go back and um, just, you know, see life on the other side um, of this line that I felt that I crossed. To be grateful for being back, yes. to for being back in New York City, because that's, I feel like I need to go back every now and then to restart my engine because, you know, there is so much freedom here. And, um, I mean, even though we always fight for more, but, um, but it's easy to lose track of why I started doing what I was doing. And then when I go back, I feel like, oh my God, you know, I need to run to the studio because it's urgent. I need to make paintings about this because it's so needed. There are lots of queer painters in New York City and queer culture. And I feel like going back to where I grew up makes me feel more vital. I mean, do you think of it as a place that you escaped in some way? I guess I asked that just because I wanted to escape from Australia. So I just, you, you have that, but then when you kind of go back the things that you felt like you needed to escape from, you just think they don't matter anymore because you have escaped, you have an, a life elsewhere. You know what? Exactly. All of those things. Yeah. Like, absolutely yeah. correct. Come to the record and say it. Yeah, I did escape it. Um, and, um, you know, like those threatening things are now defend, you know, um, not, you know, some threats don't totally go away. Of course. I mean, I never thought I would be in this position, but it's incredible. I'm so, so grateful. Why were you interested in doing this podcast? Oh, because I feel like my father has really shaped who I am. Um, and. Both of my parents have because I was really loved and coddled by my mother. And we still have a very sweet, close relationship. 
I think the fear of my father actually shaped my life, um, you know, um, in the past, not anymore. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I thought that in a sense that was an allegory almost for like a fear of the whole culture. Um, whenever I saw an image of this kind of Mughal king with his like sleepy eyes, smelling a flower, I would think of my father. <laughs> Not that he's like a Mughal prince or anything, but like it just felt like, um, I don't want to use the word tyrant. I think that's harsh, but something like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, Yeah, I think, uh, you know, a lot of the decisions that were important to me in my life, I made with this thing in the background always. And so that's, that's why I thought that it was, that, that's why I thought your podcast was so interesting. I appreciate that. Tell me about your father and daddy issues are created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. And for bonus content, go to patreon.com slash you guessed it. Tell me about your father where for as little as $3, you'll get access to an extra episode of Daddy Issues every month. Oh, and Apple Podcasts is like the New York Times book review of platforms. So if you can, go there to rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you think.